I just love uh, just being able to listen to, to the rhythm of God's word being read. Um, it's, it's a steady diet that I feel like we, we miss out on in an age where we can just kind of read things off of our phone or get things immediately via, via the Internet. But just being able to, to kind of sit in quietness and listen to God's word being read uh, and ministered to us. And you hear that rhythm of as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses, it just... I hope it helps you the way it helps me. There's there's apps, uh, you know, audible.com. You can get the Bible read to you as you're you're driving in your car. But I, I feel like it's a lost uh, a lost discipline of spirituality to just listen to God's word being read. Um, let me pray, and then we'll get started uh, with our message for this morning. Uh, Father, bless the reading of your word and the preaching of it. Um, I pray that by it you would minister to our hearts, cause us to know a little bit more about you um, and, and shape us in that way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, my name is Gavin, and I'm the, the pastor here. Um, I'm just going to move this here for a sec. Um, I'm the pastor here, and, you know, if it's your first time, we've got a Connect card inside of the bulletin. Uh, you can also scan the QR code that's there if you're high tech and fill it out that way. Uh, when you fill out a Connect card for the first time, we have a couple gifts in the back we would love for you to have. Uh, so we're now in week four of our story series, and what we're setting out to do is a large task, uh, but we want to walk through the entirety of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, highlighting all of the big stories that show how God has had a plan from the beginning that involves him and includes us. And so it, it, at the beginning... Uh, in week one, we looked at how God created everything out of nothing. He created man, he created woman, and he, he placed them in a garden to worship him. And he said, I want you to be fruitful, to multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Expand this kingdom throughout the earth. And you know how the story goes. Adam and Eve failed to do that, instead choosing to delight in themselves and their own desires rather than the God who made them. And so as a result, they're expelled from the garden. But hidden within that was a promise. God said, I'm going to send the offspring of the woman to crush the head of Satan. And so we saw kind of the beginning of that promise in week two where we looked at Abraham. And, it, and with Abraham, God calls a man out of his comfort and security in his own country with his family, uh, his friends, his own neighborhood. And he says, I want you to go on this mission to a place where I will send you. Radical mission. And what we saw Abraham exemplify for us was this faith that he had, this 100-year-old man who had no children, who God promised many children, and he has this faith. And we're told in Genesis 15 that that faith was credited to him as righteousness. And so we learn that the offspring of Abraham are us, those of us who have the same faith in Jesus Christ, get the same reward. We're promised eternal life with the God who created us. And then last week, we looked at how uh, those blessings in Abraham began to be fulfilled as his, his family expanded into the entire nation of Israel. And they find themselves in an unfortunate situation where uh, Egypt has now taken them captive and put them as slaves and treated them harshly. But then God remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he swoops in to rescue them, frees them from slavery. And so that brings us here to this week where now God is shaping his people. And he's shaping them so that they would have, uh, they would have the character 
and they would have the influence in this world that reflects who God is to the rest of the planet. And that's what's happening here now. They've been set free to become a people to be shaped by God. And there's many ways that we do that. We reflect God's grace. We reflect his justice, his mercy, his forgiveness we want to reflect. You probably saw this week at some point on your Facebook timeline or uh, if you're one of four people in South Florida who still watches the news on cable, um, you probably saw the trial of Amber Geiger or at least saw the results of it. Uh, and Amber Geiger was that woman, the off-duty police officer uh, who fatally shot Botham Jean uh, and was sentenced to 10 years in prison earlier this week. Well, why I bring that story up is what went viral this week is Botham's younger brother, Brant Jean, was seen at the trial with this compassion. And here's what he says to Amber, the, the woman who murdered his brother. He says, if you are truly sorry, I forgive you. And I know that if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I love you just like anyone else, and I want the best for you. And the best for you would be to give your life to Christ. Now, as you watch that video, I think a lot of us will probably move to tears as you watch that kind of forgiveness. And then you kind of analyze your own heart. Am I, am I capable? Am I able? Do I have that within me to forgive someone who murders a dear family member? And hopefully you arrived at the answer that I did. No, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do it. I do not have the power to do that. But what God is promising is to shape a people, to give them his presence, and by his presence, his power, and his spirit, he enables us to do the impossible, to forgive those who probably don't deserve forgiveness. And so I believe this is a reflection of God's character. I believe that this is what we were designed to have. And what, what you'll see today, hopefully, is that what we need the most in order to, to, in order to exemplify God's character and live a life that's totally fulfilled, be forgiven of our sin, and live for eternity what we need the most is the presence of God. We need God to be with us. And so this morning, we're going to look at how God initiates that opportunity for us to be with him again. He starts it. We're going to look at it three, in three ways. God in a box, God in a boy, and God in the bride. You're like, what? It'll make sense soon. Um, first, God in a box. Uh, if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever given much thought to the Garden of Eden. So the Bible talks glowingly about the Garden of Eden, and even talks about how we have this longing for it. And me, I'm always thinking about, well, why is that? Is it because uh, there's these beautiful rivers, the four rivers that flow out of it? Is it the, the flowers, the beauty of the trees, the animal life? None of that stuff's appealing to me, right? There's, there's beautiful gardens all over the world. So is that what we're longing for? I just want pretty flowers and plants. What was so special about the Garden of Eden? Well, actually, what it is, is that that's where the presence of God was. See, Adam and Eve got to walk freely, naked and unashamed, and be in the presence of God without being obliterated. Now, that sounds more appealing to me. Adam and Eve were able to walk free of guilt, free of shame, free of judgment, next to the God who created them. And if you're honest with yourself, we don't have that opportunity as it stands. See, this is what our hearts are ultimately longing for. We don't want fear. There's lots of things in our world that cause us to be afraid. You see, 
you know, terrorist activities and senseless acts of violence, and you feel a sense of fear. When I go outside, I don't, I don't know what to expect. I don't know what's going to happen. We, we have a sense of guilt where uh, we do things that we regret. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't behaved that way. I wish I hadn't said that to someone that I love, and you have this incredible weight of guilt that you walk around with, or shame thinking about the things that you've done or said or thought about and imagining if that got out in the open and people knew that I was that way, they'd just absolutely reject me. Fear and guilt and shame. And so what we want is the security and the satisfaction of being completely known. All of our guiltiness, all of our shame, all of our fear, it being known and us still being loved in return. You understand that? That's why we're afraid of being completely known. We just hey, if this person, if these people know who I truly am, they're going to reject me. They're not going to want me around. But God promises that we can be completely known and completely loved, and that's what we need the most. Only God can provide that for you. And so if you remember Adam and Eve, they didn't stay in the garden in the presence of God. They did what we would have done. They disobeyed God. They ate the fruit of the tree, and now they're kicked out. And so ultimately, they end up hiding in shame, right? Remember Adam, they sew fig leaves together and clothe themselves because they're ashamed that they're naked and they're hiding from God as if you could do such a thing. And instead of relating to God as a father, as they were supposed to, they see him as this tyrant who's out to get them. And I fear that that's the relationship that a lot of us have with God. We see him as this tyrant who's out to get us finding us in our sin and finding us in our brokenness and looking for the opportunity to condemn us when all throughout scripture he presents himself as a loving father because we need him and so when they get expelled from the garden there's those two angels with the flaming swords guarding Adam and Eve and all of humanity's entrance from getting back in and what you'll see is this theme of the two angels kind of repeating itself throughout the Bible where the presence of God is going to be I don't know if you caught it, but that's what Leo just read. As Moses is constructing this tabernacle, there's the Ark of the Covenant with the two angels standing above it. So now, in order for human beings to re-enter the presence of God, we've got to go through those swords. Someone has to go through the sword of judgment in order for us to be able to be in the presence of God once again. And so where we are this morning, after God brings the Israelites out of slavery, remember I said he's forming them into a people. What we didn't cover last week and we didn't, we, we didn't read this morning just for time's sake, uh, if you follow along with us throughout the week, we do two-minute drill uh, every, uh, every morning, Monday through Friday, uh, and this is what we read on Wednesday and Thursday, was Exodus 19 and 20. God shows up at the top of Mount Sinai, and the mountain is shaking, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and there's this, this incredible scene of God's holiness, and it's terrifying. And afterward, we see God give his law to his people, the Ten Commandments. This is how you are to behave after I've already saved you. And he takes Moses up to the mountain again and shows Moses his glory, at least a little bit of it, like what we just sang about. And he tells him to build a similar sanctuary from what God shows Moses in heaven. So Moses is at the top of the mountain. He's meeting with God. God gives Moses a vision, and he says, I want you to construct this tabernacle as I show you. And so you heard, as Leo read this morning from Exodus 40, Moses does it, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. So the question is, why build a sanctuary? Why is there this tent 
with all these items in it that Moses is, is called to build and that the Israelites are supposed to use for worship. What's with all this ritual? What does it mean? And the reason is sin needs to be addressed, needs to be taken care of. See, the reason Adam and Eve can't be in God's presence anymore is because they have sin. And so actually, as we just sang that we want to see God's glory and we want his presence with us, I say a lot, that should sound terrifying. Because if I'm in the presence of God and I have sin present within me, he is going to obliterate me. And so I don't want to be in God's presence if I remain a sinner. I want to be forgiven. I want to be washed clean. I want to be righteous before I stand in the presence of God. And so what happens now is God in his grace begins to make a way for us to attain that righteousness so that we can stand in his presence and be safe and be loved. And that's where the tabernacle enters in. So if you'll allow me quickly, I'll run through what each of those items uh, symbolize. If you have your Bibles and you're in Exodus chapter 40, you can see them. So each item meant to symbolize a need for man's sin that needed to be taken care of. You had the altar of burnt offering in verse 29, which was where a priest would come in and slaughter an animal. Um, a, a bull or a goat or something like that. And then you had this basin that the priest would then go to to wash his hands because slaughtering animals is bloody, so he's got he's to wash his hands. Uh, after washing his hands, there's a table of showbread with these 12 loaves of bread that represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the presence of God and his provision and how he takes care of them. And to the left of that, there's a lampstand, a golden lampstand, which actually was built to look like the tree of life, to remind Israel of what it would be to be in the presence of God once again. And after the lampstand, there's an altar of incense, where once the priest would get to that altar of incense, he'd light the candle, not to make the room smell good, although after you slaughtered an animal, you probably should light a candle because it's going to smell kind of funky. So he lights the incense, and what it did, the smoke going up symbolized the prayers of the people going up to God. So the priest taking the needs of the people, presenting it in prayers, going up to God. And just after that altar of incense, there was a veil, almost like these curtains, but thicker. See, these weren't that expensive, but they got a big expensive veil in the tabernacle. And that guarded the most holy place from the holy place. Here's the significance of that. All those items, the table of showbread, the lampstand, the altar, all of those things, any priest could go in there and offer those sacrifices. But the most holy place on the other side of that was the Ark of the Covenant. And you had these two angels sitting on the top of it, these golden angels that Moses was to build, facing each other, looking down at what was called the mercy seat. And back in Exodus chapter 25, God said, there I will meet with you. It's supposed to be symbolic of those angels guarding the Garden of Eden. And so because the presence of God is in this most holy place, no one could go in except for the high priest once a year. So they had the Day of Atonement, and the high priest, he'd have to wear bells, and he'd have to have a rope tied around him, because if he did anything that was out of what God commanded, he would die. And you couldn't even go in there to go and get the body, or you'd die too. That's why there was the rope. You just had to pull him out. I don't know if there's any record of that happening, but that's what that, that was the holiness of God. And so as you're, as you're the high priest... And you're tying these bells around your waist and this rope. You are thinking as you're making these sacrifices, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I don't want to touch anything. I don't want to die. God help me. God help me. And it's on purpose. 
it's meant to demonstrate the radical holiness of God, that sin cannot be present anywhere near him. But I want you to think about why the tabernacle exists in the first place. See, if Adam and Eve sinned against God, it really should be case closed, game over, you guys are done. Flood again, wipe out the earth, done with it. But the whole reason the tabernacle existed in the first place was to give human beings a way to be in the presence of God. He didn't have to do that. Why make a way? Why did he need to do that? Hopefully what this does for you is it gives you an indication of just how serious sin is. See, it's not a character flaw. It's not a slight imperfection. It's not a mistake. It's not a slip up. It's not something light. It's open rebellion against the king of the universe. It's mutiny against the one who created you. And because God is holy, the sin must be dealt with. And so the tabernacle he introduces as a system of grace. See, but what you'll learn today is that the tabernacle is also very, very insufficient. Think about the logic of this. A priest is sacrificing a bull or a goat to take care of the sins of a human being. Allow me to illustrate why that's a little bit ridiculous. Imagine again this trial for Amber Geiger earlier this week, and the judge comes down with the sentence, you're guilty of murder, you get 10 years in prison. Imagine her saying, I object, Your Honor. I actually have a pet goat, so I don't want to spend 10 years in prison. Will you please accept this goat and put it in prison on my behalf? So the judge turns to the side, kind of rubs his chin. I think it was a lady. So rubs her chin. She's thinking about it. The goat, special. I like goats. Okay, I'll take the goat. You go free. Ridiculous, right? Nobody's, nobody's giving a pet goat and getting off for murder. It's just not how it works. You kill somebody, you go to jail. Human life for human life. That's the way it's been set up from the beginning. So why the animals? What is that about? It's a picture. As the priest steps up on the altar, and you know, forgive the, 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 the bloodiness, but he slits the throat of the animal, and as you see the blood spill out and the life leave that animal, it demonstrates to the priest just how serious the sin is. But a goat, a bull, a ram, a lamb, a turtle dove cannot atone for the sins of a human being. It's a picture of what actually needed to come. And so what we really needed was a greater sacrifice, a human being to step in on our behalf to take on the sins that we committed. Enter point number two, God and a boy. That's Jesus Christ. John, the apostle, opens up his gospel with this tabernacle theme. So he's taking this idea of the tabernacle that we need in order to, to, to do these sacrifices, light this lampstand, send up this incense, sprinkle the blood on the altar. He's taking that idea so that we can meet with God, and he puts it in Jesus. And he says these words in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, the word that John is talking about is Jesus himself. Jesus, God eternal, became flesh. He became a human being because that's what was needed to pay for sin. Needed a human being to go to the cross and die for us in order for sin. The only, the only sufficient atonement for a human being is human life, okay? And so John communicates what Jesus did in pretty interesting language. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
the sense of that word dwelt literally means to pitch a tent among us. You can actually substitute that word dwelt out and put Jesus Christ, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is becoming all of the sacrifices that were needed on our behalf. He tabernacled among us. And so Jesus himself is the fulfillment to absolutely everything that went on that the priest was doing in the tabernacle. If you don't believe me, read this from Hebrews chapter 9. You're like, I don't believe you. You just, you just finished seminary a couple weeks ago. All right. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11, says this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, it's important, he's the high priest. Who's the only one that can go into the most holy place? A high priest. So when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Jesus Christ, entered once for all into the holy places. See, this is important because remember I told you Day of Atonement was once every year. So the priest, he'd make the sacrifices, he'd be done, and then he'd be thinking about next year i got to come back and do that all again. Every year, had to sacrifice a goat, sacrifice a goat, sacrifice a goat. Jesus Christ doesn't have to die on the cross again. It's once for all. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, verse 15, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise, the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. All that fancy language. Jesus is the high priest, and he's the sacrifice, and he's the God being sacrificed too. He's all of it. And so through Jesus Christ, we get this eternal inheritance, this eternal promise that doesn't fade away, doesn't need, need to be done again year after year. And so the writer of Hebrews presents Jesus as a mediator. Well, what's that? We need someone to stand between us because God is full of wrath and he's a just and good God and we are full of sin and deserving of God's wrath and judgment. And so Jesus steps in, he takes our sin and we get his righteousness. This is the most unfair exchange that exists. Jesus Christ in perfection, having completed the law fully, takes on the sin, the death, the judgment that you deserve and in turn he gives you the righteousness that he deserved. That is amazing. And that's how Abraham's faith was able to be credited to him as righteousness. That's how your faith is able to be credited to you as righteousness. See, believing in Jesus Christ isn't about just uh, having faith in this grandpa God who's just nice and says, hey, it doesn't matter what you've done. You come over to my house, you get candy. That's not what's happening. He paid for it. He went to the cross and died and said, because I fulfilled the just punishment for the law, you can now go free. Just trust in me. See, our natural tendency is to try and connect with God and atone for our guilt in many, many other ways. Faith doesn't make sense to us. We think, man, if I give money to charity, 
you know, not to be uh, not to, not to be disrespectful, but sometimes a tragedy happens, like what happened in the Bahamas, and we just think, if I if I give money toward that, surely that fulfills my good deed and my duty, and God is happy with that. Surely, if I send money to these kids who need uh, who have no families, and I send some food, I'm doing my good deed. Surely, if Thanksgiving comes up and I roll up at the at the homeless shelter and hand out some food, surely God is pleased with that. Yeah, He is. Good stuff to do. Doesn't take care of your sin. Not at all. Only Jesus Christ does that. And so any kind of vague spirituality, any, any kind of trying to, to, to uh, subdue your conscience a little bit by doing good deeds, just know they don't add up to salvation. It's not how it works. See, what we need more than anything is for God, the real God, the true God, the God from this Bible, to be with us, and you only get that through Jesus Christ. See, but again, if you're like me, you're kind of wondering how that works. Jesus died a long time ago. I get it. Okay, cool, pastor. He died on the cross. That pays for my sins. Well, how is he with me? Well, let's talk about that. Last point, God in the bride. As you read through the New Testament, you'll notice that there are lots of metaphors that it uses to describe the church. But they aren't just metaphors. There's something more to it. See, for example, if I, say, uh, if I say LeBron James is a beast, you know what I mean. He's a good basketball player. He's aggressive. He's good at his sport. He's not an actual animal. At least I hope you don't think that. He's a human being, and you know, he's not an animal. He, he plays like one, but he's not an animal. So he's not, it's not literal. It's just a metaphor. It's just an example that we're using to describe his talents. But biblical metaphors, especially in relationship to the church, they actually have a little bit of literalism to them. I'll give you another example. The New Testament refers to the church as Christ's bride. That's why this point is called God in the bride. I really picked that because you got box, boy, bride. Bride has nothing to do with this sermon, but I just, you know, I wanted to get a B word in there. So anyway, the church is the bride, and we'll use it as an example. Uh, Jesus didn't literally, you know, find a woman, woo her, propose, and get married. You understand that. So the church isn't literal in that sense, but the same way that a husband is called to love his wife sacrificially, give himself up for her, that's what Jesus did for us. And so it's not just a metaphor. It's not just an example. We, as the church, really are loved and cherished by our husband, Jesus Christ. And so to get to the point, when the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, in him, in Christ, you, that'd be the church, those who believe in him, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, that's not metaphorical. See, when God calls the church a dwelling place, he's not using an example like when I say that LeBron James is a, be is, is a beast. It's literal. We are literally God's dwelling place. It's actually where God dwells. Well, how is that? Jesus doesn't remain dead after dying on the cross. That's what the whole story is about, right? He gets buried away in the tomb. They roll the stone over the entrance so that no one could go in and steal the body. And then Mary, you read this in, in John, Mary runs to the tomb and Peter and John run there as well in John chapter 20. And when they get there, the stones rolled away. Jesus Christ isn't there. But yet you see his linen cloths, and you see these two angels, one at the head, one at the foot. 
of where Jesus had been lame. Well, where have I seen two angels before? I see him on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, where God meets with me. I see him at the entrance of the Garden of Eden, where God meets with me. I see him in Jesus' tomb, where God meets with me. That's telling me something about Jesus Christ. And so after Christ rises from the dead and ascends to heaven, he doesn't leave us alone. Acts chapter 2, we read that he sends the Holy Spirit. And it's characterized very tangibly in Acts chapter 2, where you see these tongues of fire on tops of people's heads. You can read that, uh, read that later. We'll actually cover that passage in a, f- in a few weeks. And you remember that all throughout the Bible, God's presence is characterized by fire. The burning bush on the mountain. The pillar of fire that the Israelites follow. The fire that was present on the mountain in Exodus chapter 19. And so the presence of God is with those who follow him. We are his dwelling, pillar, dwelling place. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says this, We are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. It's giving the idea of the tabernacle, of the temple in the Old Testament that was built to sustain God's presence where the people would go to worship him and be forgiven of their sins. Well, now... New Testament Christianity, our sins have been paid for, our Savior is risen, the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. We are now the spiritual house of God. The veil in the temple has been torn, and now anybody can get in there and meet with God. And so Jesus Christ went through the sword of judgment so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could enter God's presence without dying. So that when we sing things about glory clouds and God's presence being with us, that's not a frightening thing. That's actually what we need. We get to see God's magnificent glory and all of its goodness. You see, what's so glorious about God, this whole idea of the tabernacle is mind-blowing. You see the holiness of God that says, I must punish sin. Something has to die because my holiness requires it. But you see the incredible mercy of God that says, I'm going to go ahead and do that for you and welcome you into my presence. The totality of justice, the the totality of mercy, all meeting in one person, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we worship him. And so now Jesus has saved his church. He dwells with her. And so I hope you don't miss the opportunity to be able to get the fulfillment that you need in Jesus Christ Alone, See, the presence of God in your life allows you to be forgiving the same way that Brant was in that trial. It allows you to find the satisfaction and significance that only Jesus Christ offers. See, he deals with the sin that causes fear and guilt and shame. And we still walk through that, right? We're not perfect. But yet I can go to a God. And Hebrews chapter 4 talks about this. I can enter the throne with confidence and find mercy and grace to help me in time of need. See, whatever I'm afraid of, I can lay it at the feet of Jesus. He asks me to do that. He commands you to do that. I can take all of my shame. I can lay that at the feet of Jesus. He'll take care of it. All of my guilt, I can throw it on Jesus, and he died for that. And so all of the things that plague every single human being on the planet, whether we want to be honest with it, about that or not, we all have the fear. We all have the guilt. We all have the shame. Only Jesus Christ takes care of that. And so by entering into his presence, by having the Holy Spirit in my heart, that's now taken care of. And now I can step out in mission and live with the significance that Christ has given me. That means when I go Monday morning to work, tomorrow when you go to work, it's not just me punching a clock and doing a job and getting a paycheck. 
but I'm contributing to the flourishing of this planet. I'm doing what God has called me to do. Literally, literally whatever it is God has called you to do by the Holy Spirit's power, you are doing God's work. See, we often have this kind of sacred, secular divide, and people look at pastors and evangelists and missionaries and say, those are the holy people doing God's work. That's not so. God, God promised to feed you. You understand that? That means so if you're a waiter, if you're a cashier at Publix, if you're a butcher, if you bake bread, you are the tangible love of God feeding his people in this world. The Holy Spirit causes you to recognize that and recognize that fulfillment in your life. You're doing God's work. And so with the Holy Spirit within you, you are now a better representation of God than Adam and Eve ever could be. We can forgive like Brant did. We can love. We can be merciful, we can be gracious, we can be kind, we can be the presence of God here in this world. And just as Adam was called to fill the earth with that presence, we're called to do that too. That's why we talk about churches around the world popping up in theaters and elementary schools and and clubs and bars and on street corners because we're extending the presence of God to this world hoping that the Holy Spirit would fill hearts, forgive sin, guarantee eternal life, be free of fear, be free of guilt, be free of shame. That's what we're here to do. We're not here to just talk about good morals. We are here to worship the God who saved us, be filled with his presence, and go and do that for the rest of the week. And so I pray that as you you realize that, that the veil is torn, I can enter into this most holy place. I don't have to put any bells on unless you're into that, whatever. I don't have to put on any bells. I don't have to tie a rope around my waist. I can walk freely in, and I can bring my friends, too, to meet Jesus, to meet the God who saved them. That's incredible. This is what all of the Old Testament saints longed for. Moses said, God, let me see your glory. We didn't read the passage. In Exodus chapter 34, God says, uh, when you go up to the mountain, Take the Israelites with you, but I'm going to hang back. And Moses says, do not let me go up this mountain without you. We don't want to inhabit this land without your presence. See, Moses understood me getting any kind of blessing without getting God, it's useless. It's worthless. I don't want money. I don't want houses. I don't want cars. I don't want success. I don't want friendships, popularity, unless I get God too. Because without him, it's all empty. So I pray that you would receive Christ. You believe in him, trust in him, and have your hearts filled with the Holy Spirit. It's what we need more than anything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making a way. Uh, It's purely logical that if you're a good God and you're a good judge, sinners deserve death. And that's where we stand. We stand as sinners in your presence. But yet here we are, breathing, alive, taking in air, hearing a a message, singing songs, because you're a good God and you're a gracious God on top of that. And so we ask that we don't presume upon your grace, that we don't take it for granted, but we would tap into the reality that the throne room is open. We can walk in at any time, lay at the altar our fear, our guilt, and our shame, and you've taken care of it in Jesus Christ. And so we can walk out in freedom and forgiveness bringing your presence to this world. I pray you would give us the conviction to do just that and that you would comfort our hearts when we feel weak and we feel tempted. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.